So John, you will be playing the role of Adam Severt, who is a lawyer for the Department of Justice. So in this scenario, and what's his background? <laughs> what, uh, what accent should I should no, I use? No. Is he Southern? Is he from Alaska? Where <laughs> I want to really get into this. He's got a flat Ohio accent. Okay, so really, it's that's perfect. right. Hi, and welcome to GeekWire. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. And I'm GeekWire co-founder John Cook. We are coming to you from Seattle, where we get to report each day on what's happening around us in technology, business, and innovation. What happens here matters everywhere. And every week on this show, we talk about some of the most interesting stories in the news. Coming up later on, a dramatic reenactment here in the GeekWire studios of Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella's testimony in the Google antitrust case in Washington, D.C. As read by Todd Bishop and John Cook? <laughs> yes. What role are you playing? I'm going to play Satya. Okay. Is that okay? <laughs> what am I doing? You're going to be a couple of different lawyers. Okay. <laughs> I can handle that. <laughs> you know, that's funny because there was no live stream and there's no audio from the courtroom. However, I was able to get a hold of the transcripts, which we can at least in part, reenact. And I picked a couple of very telling passages that we'll have later on. So I'm going to have to go back to my thespian <laughs> days here. Were you in theater? I was. Theater I, musical theater. And speaking <laughs> of Microsoft, I don't know if we want to go there. Yeah, that's okay. But you know the history, it ties into Microsoft. Oh, my sure. classmate, as I knew him, Judd Altoff, a very senior executive, runs essentially the sales organization yeah. at Microsoft. He was in my high school class in Worcester, Ohio, and he was actually a fantastic thespian. Well, we could have gotten him in here to read. That would have been awesome. I don't think <laughs> I don't think that would go over as well. <laughs> All right. Well, coming up later on, stick around for that. Clearly, with this buildup, you're going to want to wait for that. I'm excited. But first, the GeekWire Summit is coming up on October 19th. That is less than two weeks away. For those who have not been following this, this is a half-day conference this year focused on the realities of AI. AI gets real, as we're calling it. And we are very excited to be hosting this at an iconic Seattle venue, the former Cinerama Movie Theater in Seattle. And the event is going to be really cool. We've got some great panels. We've got a surprise movie in the evening. So if you have not signed up yet, be sure to do that soon. You can go to geekwire.com slash summit. John, you've been working hard on this agenda. What are you most looking forward to? Well, of course, the chocolate popcorn, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's the big selling of selling the, point on the event. And the spicy insights from the panels. <laughs> the spicy insights from the panels, yes. Yes. No, we've got a great lineup of, of speakers, uh, a lot of great leaders from the technology industry, from venture capital, entrepreneurship, folks from Microsoft, GitHub, Redfin CTO, Bridget Fry. So we got a real nice mix of guests who are going to be sharing insights across the spectrum of what's happening in AI. Absolutely. Others include David Shim, the CEO at Read AI, who is one of the leaders, not only in the technology, but the business of artificial intelligence here locally. Byron Boots, the co-founder and CEO of Overland AI, real world insights. And that's really going to be the focus here. We're looking forward to seeing everybody out on October 19th at the GeekWire Summit. And again, you can check that out at geekwire.com slash summit. All right, we're going to take a quick break here, John. When we come back, a dramatic reenactment of Satya Nadella speaking in the Getting Google Antitrust trial. papers ready here. All right, we'll be right back. I wanted a career in IT, but I didn't know where to start. WGU makes it simple. Their accredited online degree programs cover all kinds of IT specialties, and they have valuable industry certifications built in at no extra cost. The payoff? 
Having those certs back up my degree makes me look even better to future employers. A nonprofit university that includes top industry certs in their programs? I choose WGU. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included. Without further ado, John, I picked a couple of segments of this transcript. And now I have not read any of this. So it's going to be a cold read. Cold read. At the cold table. Read. Cold table read. <laughs> <laughs> so this first passage is a long one, but it is meaty and it is the one that got the most attention in the news. So you're not just going to be hearing the sound bites. You'll be hearing all of the context around some of the things that came out in the news, which I think is telling in an illuminating way. So, John, you will be playing the role of Adam Severt, who is a lawyer for the Department of Justice. So in this scenario- And what's his background? <laughs> what, uh, what accent should I should no, I use? No. Is he Southern? Is he from Alaska? Where, <laughs> I want to really get into this. He's got a flat Ohio accent. Okay, so really, it's that's perfect. right. He went to the Ohio State University. Actually, I'm going to look him up where <laughs> okay. he went. Oh, geez, really? Deep yeah. research. Okay. <laughs> How do you spell his last name? S-E-V-E-R-T. Emory University. That's uh, Georgia. Okay. No, don't. Don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> yes. Just, oh, no. Emory okay. University School of Law. All right. I'm not going to put it okay. in his voice. All right, voice. John. So this comes in the middle of a long discussion about search engine defaults and browsers and mobile phones and whether Bing or Google is the default. John, you are playing the part of the Justice Department lawyer. I'm playing the part of Satya Nadella and... Apologies, Satya. <laughs> Go ahead. When you say distribution, do you mean defaults? Defaults. And why is that the type of distribution that you've been focused on? I mean, it's the mechanism that fundamentally can change. This entire notion that users have choice and they go from one website to one website or one search into one search, it's completely bogus. There's defaults. The only thing that matters in terms of changing search behavior and at this point, in fact, it's even more true, right? You get up in the morning, you brush your teeth, and you search on Google. And so therefore, with that level of habit forming, the only way to change is by changing defaults. And is there a difference between defaults on desktop versus mobile? The desktop, it ironically turns out that Windows is the most open platform today because anyone can distribute anything on Windows. They don't need to go to Microsoft. And so, yes, we do have defaults of ours, but it doesn't require any coordination with Microsoft to distribute a complete alternate player, which includes the browser as well. So changing defaults today is easiest on Windows, toughest on mobile platforms because they're all locked up. They're all locked up on the browser that is allowed. They're locked up with App Store access. So there are many many sort of friction points on mobile operating systems. And you made a statement that Windows is the most open platform today. What did you mean by that? Here's the thought experiment. To ask ourselves today and say, would Google even exist if Windows had iOS-like restrictions on how things get distributed? Google exists because of two things. One is because of our consent decree, where we had to put a lot of limits on what we could distribute and not distribute by default. And second, because the fact that you could distribute anything you wanted on Windows, and it's still the case, right? It's not just Google. Take the largest marketplace on Windows happens to be not from Microsoft. It's Steam. And so it's an open platform on which anybody can distribute anything. And that is a great advantage for somebody trying to build a new business. Okay, end scene. 
<laughs> okay. So the point that he's trying to make here, and perhaps this dramatic reading was less compelling than I envisioned it when I was reading it on the page. However, the point that he's making is, hey, Google controls in a variety of ways the access of a competitor like Microsoft to these mobile platforms. It has a deal with Apple on iOS, and it has, of course, control of Android because it's the one that puts Android out. But Microsoft isn't doing that. It opened up the door to Google to be successful on Windows. And so Google's response to all of this is, wait a second, this is not about access, it's about quality. If they make Bing better than Google, then users will switch. Because look at what happened on Windows. Or they could just pay Apple more money to get Bing distributed instead of Google distributed. Perfect segue to our second <laughs> reading. And I will say that Microsoft's point on all of this is, one of the reasons that their product is not as good as Google is that they don't have the data. They don't have the signals to improve their search results on mobile in particular, where if they had the higher market share, they'd be able to deliver better search results. And Microsoft's contention is that Google is effectively locking being out of that through these various tactics to protect its monopoly. Since this is my first read through yes. on this and just hearing yes. Satya's comments for the first time, is he referencing the antitrust case against Microsoft here directly, yes. that there were limits put on to Microsoft that has made for this more open environment and a more competitive environment as a result. So he's actually celebrating the fact that there, <laughs> that, or he's using it in his defense at least yes. to say that we went through this antitrust struggle that created a better ecosystem as a result, which is a pretty interesting argument to make given all the history between Microsoft and the antitrust division. I would put it a different way. I think he would argue that Windows has always been an open platform where somebody could come on and distribute any software that they effectively wanted to as long as it was compatible with the operating system. The consent decree that Microsoft reached where they were bundling Internet Explorer and other programs with Windows prevented Microsoft from employing some of the same tactics that Google might have. It couldn't lock Google out in the same it's way. It's confusing in this instance with the Google-Apple example because you're talking about two different companies versus in the case of where Microsoft was previously, it was one company bundling everything together. Right. And that's on iOS you're talking about where it's confusing because it's Apple and Google. Right. But then you've got right. Google with Android where they effectively have control over the defaults, not only on Google handhelds, but Microsoft says by twisting the arm of people like Samsung and threatening, for example, to, in Microsoft's view, potentially withhold the Play Store, the Google Play Store from Samsung devices, if, for example, Samsung doesn't offer Google search as the default on phones. Now, I don't know that that specifically is something that Google has done, but Microsoft's point is, hey, that's the threat that is effectively hanging over Samsung's head. If they were to go against Google and switch to Bing, they would be on the outs with Google and not have access to the things in Android that they might want to be successful on that platform. Interesting. Okay. So this part is shorter and a little less consequential, but I appreciated <laughs> it because it's a point of contention between the Google lawyer, who, John, you will be representing. And now who, who am I in this instance? This, this is John Schmidtlein. Spelling, please. S-C-H-M-I-D. T-L-E-I-N. He's a lawyer with Williams and Conley in Washington, D.C., representing Google. So obviously, this is on cross, as they say. So again, I'll play Satya Nadella, and 
this is in the context of Microsoft's negotiations with Apple, attempting to replace Google as the default search engine on iOS. Satya says, so the point I was making to Apple, which, by the way, is the only reason why they kept engaging, is with the Apple brand, it was not going to be called Bing. We had all kinds of strategic flexibility. It was going to be just like Apple Maps. That was the idea. This was not about trying to put Bing and the Bing brand front and center. Oh, I see. You're going to hide the Bing brand? Yeah, of course. We were going to take whatever Apple felt was their chance as a success with the technology. So you were going to try to hide the Bing brand behind the Apple brand and fool all the Google users into staying with Bing instead of switching back to Google, which is what they did on Windows in droves, right? That is not what I said. <laughs> Jerk. <laughs> <laughs> that was implied, that okay. last part. So this gets to the heart of Google's argument, which is that Google is successful because its search engine is good and Bing is not successful in spite of Microsoft's strengths on Windows because Bing sucks. That is the nutshell of this argument. And Microsoft says, well, yeah, Bing is not good because we don't have the traffic. We don't have the volume to make it good. And the reason we don't have the traffic and the volume is because Google is leveraging its monopoly power to continue its dominance of the market. Well, Google also pays Apple. Yes. Microsoft, a lot of money. Microsoft so, was willing to make a bunch of concessions and, and make it so Microsoft even lost money on it. I mean, the figures they're talking about are in the 10 to $15 billion a year range. And there was a story out that Microsoft also considered selling Bing to Apple. And that was according to a transcript of some testimony from Apple's head of machine learning that was unsealed in the Google antitrust case. So Microsoft has clearly tried a bunch of different things here to figure out how to head off Google and search. And of course, the irony is that Microsoft is the company that was the original monopoly in tech in many ways. That's where it's kind of hard to stomach all of this. Yeah. <laughs> is that these are gigantic companies with massive fiefdoms all to themselves that are fighting over power. And it's like, at the end of the day, who cares? I mean, who cares who has this? power or not. I, I guess Microsoft would claim that they would be a more open system or it would be more competitive in some way, but it would still be Microsoft controlled, I would think. So I'm, I'm like, Microsoft wants a piece of it or are they saying that it would be more open if Microsoft had a piece of it? I think Microsoft is arguing against Google here in its own interest, but also as a proxy in its mind for others who might want to compete with Google, but wouldn't have a chance, not even the chance that Microsoft has, nowhere close to the chance that Microsoft has to actually compete. It makes total sense that you would look at this and say, really, Microsoft, stop whining. I mean, that's yeah. really a lot of the sentiment that's out there. At the same time, I think it's important for regulators to look at companies that have giant positions in any market and say, are they maintaining those positions unlawfully. And in this case, it happens to be that the most credible rival is another tech giant with a tiny little search engine. So that's what's going on here. 
By the way, there was also a long discussion as part of Satya Nadella's testimony about the future of AI and his concerns that Google could lock up publishers and others with the data needed to train large language models into exclusive deals that would preclude Microsoft and others from getting access to the kinds of underlying data that they would need to create effective models of their own. You can read more about that in the related post on this episode on geekwire.com. Coming up after the break, my latest experiment in generative AI, channeling someone who hasn't been around for 20 years and the reaction it got online. Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop with John Cook. When I was growing up in Northern California, I read a lot of Herb Cain. Was there somebody similar to that, like a daily three-dot newspaper columnist in Ohio? Not so much. Yeah. Certainly was familiar with Herb Cain. Yeah. Loved the approach and style. Up here in the Pacific Northwest, kind of the counterpart to Herb Cain in some ways as a city columnist, casual, kind of off-the-cuff writing and reporting was a journalist by the name of Emmett Watson. And I actually was not familiar with Emmett Watson growing up, but of course, living in Seattle for the past 20 plus years, very familiar with who he was and his work. And of course, we many years later worked at one of the papers that he was a columnist at, the Seattle Post-Intelligencer. Yeah. I don't think we ever overlapped. He was the champion of, as he called it, lesser Seattle. And as I was sitting at my computer this week, thinking about some of the stories that we were writing and the direction Seattle's going in, at least as represented by the growth of the tech industry and the tech economy, for some reason, Emmett Watson popped to my mind. And I got to wondering, what would Emmett Watson think about Seattle today? Just the overall growth of the city, because that seems to run counter to his whole philosophy of lesser Seattle. So I came up with an idea. I asked ChatGPT to write an Emmett Watson style column. In fact, a column in the voice and style of Emmett Watson as if he were to come back to life and read a day's worth of GeekWire coverage. What would he say? And I have to say, after feeding it the GeekWire stories and making sure that it knew who Emmett Watson was and pointing it to a biography of him, the result was pretty astonishing to me. Very good. Yes. And I'll link to the full piece, but just to give you a sense for it, here's the intro. Emmett Watson's Seattle. The ghost of lesser Seattle weighs in. Ah, Seattle, my erstwhile haven against the hustle now embraced by the tech titans and startup savants. It's been two decades since I bid adieu, and oh, how the cityscape's narrative has morphed. I stumble upon GeekWire, a digital chronicle of this new world, and behold the metamorphosis. ByteDance, the parent of that whimsical app TikTok, now claims a larger slice of Seattle's precious soil. Would these digital dramatists appreciate the drizzle and gray that once nurtured the city's humble heartbeat? Then there's Amazon, the Goliath that swapped the modesty of bookselling for the boundless realm of e-commerce, and now radio reimagination. Alas, their amp venture hit a discordant note, yet the irony is not lost on me. They wield the baton over an orchestration of commerce, yet the rhythm of radio eluded their grasp. 
And oh, the audacity, secret price trials under a cloak of Project Nessie? The Loch Ness Monster is easier to stomach than clandestine capitalism. Amazon, you've truly outgrown your humble bookstore britches. <laughs> so that was ChatGPT channeling the voice and ethos of Emmett Watson to recap a day's worth of GeekWire stories. And he goes on and he eventually, of course, laments everything that <laughs> his beloved Berg has become. <laughs> so first off, I thought it was remarkable in a lot of ways. There were a few things that I thought were not good. He kept saying the word O, oh, like O-H a lot to set up his things. And he, he said the word humble at least four times, you yeah. know, like. Oh, how the plot thickens with each binary beat of this digital drama. Yes. It felt a little contrived in parts, but I think this could have passed as genuine. And to me, that's kind of the ultimate test. I did this late at night and I published it early in the morning. And John, you brought up something after I published it that made me rethink what I did actually. You asked, what do you think his heirs would think about this? And that made me wonder if this was actually a good thing to do. <laughs> like, what would you think if your grandfather had been digitally reincarnated by some random journalist who asked ChatGPT to speak in his voice? I'm not so sure how I would feel about that. So that was one thing. And... um the reaction from readers was all over the map. So I'll give you the first, like a, a really positive one from one reader. I got this in my email. Thanks. It was great to hear the master as he viewed the city once yet again. Wow. Okay. Now that's pretty cool. And then on LinkedIn, uh, another one of my followers said, nope, not even close. Emmett is spinning in his grave. <laughs> Glenn Drosendahl, who we worked with at the Seattle PI, posted on Facebook when I put this on there. I thought his comment was really interesting. He said, great idea for a story, and I hate to say it, a pretty good job by the bot. Yikes. <laughs> I thought that actually perfectly encapsulated my feelings after I really sat and reflected on this. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about this. Well, to your original comment on just what the heirs of Emmett Watson would think, interestingly, I was listening to Marketplace on NPR this week. They had a very interesting story. The headline was, there's a corner of the internet where YouTubers read strangers' obituaries. Why? So we should link to this because it was a very fascinating really? report. It's like this, people are kind of hijacking obituaries in a, in a way. And so it kind of ties into this theme a little purpose? bit. Well, I assume they're monetizing it in some some way, shape, or form. Oh, but, okay. Yeah, but uh, yeah, so it, c it gets into this idea of how are people trading on the legacy of somebody who has passed, which yeah. I think is what you were struggling with. Yeah, and and that wasn't like we're trading on. It. I think you were doing it as a more of a, a intellectual tribute and intellectual exercise versus it's not like we're. Monetizing. monetizing this in some way or or doing this as our as our full-fledged business right. i guess not yet unless you're <laughs> thinking that this no, becomes no. a regular column for for geekwire no not at all i think that it was an interesting exercise and to me it was a journalistic exercise in that it demonstrated the capabilities of generative ai in a novel way and it also was 
a good thought exercise to consider what would Emmett Watson say and think about the place that his Seattle has become. And um, I thought the, the final paragraph was actually really, really good. And I'll read it here. It says, Ah, Seattle, the cradle of my musings, now a playground for the code-clad conquerors. Too much alliteration in the whole thing, by the way. I kind of like that. Yeah, but it was too much. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little bit of alliteration goes a long way. And yet, amidst the Silicon Saga, I yearn for the echoes of lesser Seattle, the gentle ripple of Puget Sound against the hull of a solitary ferry, the murmur of rain against the old brick facades, the symphony of simplicity. I think that's wonderful. It's pretty damn good. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, I think it's fantastic. <laughs> Spoken by a, a hack, and on, on my case, you know, like... There's, there's journalism and then there's writing. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I don't know. I think this would pass muster in a lot, a lot of daily newspapers. And frankly, it probably would probably be better than half the things that are in many newspapers in terms of a city columnist these days. That's not a comment on anyone in particular. I'm just saying this is pretty darn good. That's it. All right. Thanks for going on this AI dramatic journey with me today. Yeah, I think we had more readings in this episode <laughs> we'll than we've ever had. <laughs> more readings and fewer listeners. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we hope you Well, next with week, us. maybe we'll have to bring back the chat or the, uh, the bot creations of our voices and just oh, do that again. I didn't even think of that. That would have made those earlier readings a lot, a lot easier. Bring back our voice clones. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for listening, everybody. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the GeekWire podcast wherever you listen. And check out geekwire.com slash summit for our upcoming event. Until next time, I'm Todd Bishop. And I'm John Cook. We'll be back next week with a new episode of the GeekWire podcast. <laughs>